I mean, I had great mentors in that. Chris Argerus, the late Chris Argerus was fantastic on that. He pounded into me, you know, Roger, knowledge upon which you cannot take action is barely worth having at all. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Hello and welcome. I am so excited to share with you today my conversation with my friend and mentor, Roger Martin. Roger is the former dean of the Rotman School of Management, which is the business school at the University of Toronto, which is where my co-author Andras Tilchik teaches. Uh, And so I got to know Roger a little bit through Andras, and then over the years he has been a real um, a real guide for me as I, I build my own practice and, and build my own thinking around systems. Roger's written a ton of books, um, a lot of which are about systems thinking and, and kind of unpacking very hard problems into palatable and digestible and, and frankly, actionable pieces. Um, his most recent book, which we talk about in this episode today, is called When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency, and it is basically a way of thinking about the broader economic political system in terms of systems, and I'm really delighted to have this conversation with Roger. Roger is also the, uh, has been named by Thinkers50, the world's number one management thinker. He's written 11 books, which is more books than I can imagine writing, although you know, maybe maybe one day I'll get there. Uh, and they're all great. Um, Creating Great Choices, he wrote with uh, another friend of mine, Jennifer Riel, who I, I met through Roger. And he's also written a book called Playing to Win, which is all about what it means to think about strategy. And uh, if you listen to my conversation with David Burkus, then you'll hear David and I talking about kind of how we think about Roger's playing to win philosophy as applied to our own businesses. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the conversation. If, if listeners haven't heard of you, who, who are you? How do you, how do you describe yourself? Well, I'm a, uh, somebody who works at probably the intersection of, of business and economics. And uh, I was a strategy consultant to begin with and a business school dean. And I generally write books about the world of the business economy uh, where I see models of the, of the world in place that aren't producing the results that people want them to and expect them to. And so I've written a series of books that all have the same theme, which is here's the way we think about the following thing. It's not getting us what we want what is an alternative way to, to think about it? So that is what I do in life. Yeah. And it's, I've read, uh, I've read a, a bunch of your books and I love your work and it's been an inspiration to me. And the first book of yours that somebody sent me to was a book called The Opposable Mind, um, which I think was, uh, for me, the first time I had really uh, seen the kind of model treated as the as the unit of study 
in in a sense as like the thing that was worth paying attention to um how did you come to to that like how did you come to that i don't know if insight is the right word or or approach um you know i guess it it's been something that goes back a long time i'm i'm always interested in um I've always been interested in models, how to think about a given problem. And then I'm sufficiently sort of pragmatic and practical that I then want to ask, well, does it work? Uh, and, and if the answer is it doesn't, I used to be when I was younger mystified. It's like, why don't you just do the right thing? But now I understand much more about path dependence and habits and, 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 and the like. And so, so I understand, you know, we have QWERTY keyboards, whatever, 90 years or 100 years later, right. uh, because we have a habit of having a keyboard that was designed for something that is irrelevant uh, uh, today. Um, and so, so, so in, in the case of the opposable mind, right, it was, it was, I, I observe that we are taught, like in business schools and in organizations, that the leaderly thing to do is when you've got a really tough problem, where it's a really tough either or choice, the leaderly thing to do is to just buckle down and choose. Goes back to Harry Truman, the buck stops here. I'll make the tough, the tough choices. Um, and I observed highly successful leaders and studied a whole bunch of them uh, to see whether that's what they did. <clears throat> and they didn't. They did the opposite, uh, which is when there's a really tough choice, when there's an easy choice, when it's like, you know, do you want to kick in the groin or uh, a day at the beach? You know, it's like, duh, uh, that, that's easy. I'll, 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 I'll choose. They're very, they're very, very quick to boom, done. Uh, that's easy. But when it's 5149, uh, they take it as a signal, wow, my job is to not choose. Uh, my job is to see whether I can cleverly think up a better answer. And that's just their reaction. So they have this different model in their head that says, it's, I'm not being a tough guy or tough gal to make the hard choice. That is actually a complete cop-out. Uh, and uh, and I have to do something uh, uh, differently. So it's just that that's sort of the the you know the approach that I've that I've taken in in general in in all of my uh, work. Well, and it, and it strikes me that one of the things I've gone back to in so your latest book is when more is not better, um, and the subtitle "Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency." It's fabulous, and it's the same thought process on kind of a the the level of an economy of a society. And one of the things that, um, well, one of the things that kind of, in hearing you talk about the opposable mind right now, in reading your most recent book, one of the things that kind of strikes me is that a lot of the strategies we're talking about not working are ones that probably used to work, are ones that in a simpler environment, it made sense to optimize for efficiency, or it made sense to, you know, have the control and kind of the insight vested in one person who, you know, did just make that tough decision, but that that's not the environment that we operate in anymore. Um, does that make sense as a framing for you? 
Yeah, no, I think they're like I, I think they're all all of these are part of the part of the answer. Like one is is that the model might have been fit for purpose, more fit for purpose in a different time. It's less fit for purpose now. But another piece of the puzzle, uh, and that's the more is not better, is we're applying it in a more extreme way than we were. So that's another another kind of uh, uh, factor. So I'd say all of these factors probably c accumulate to, to make the fit of the model as deployed kind of less appropriate for the, uh, the current environment. Yeah, right. Um, I, I love that when I'd never heard this term before, but you introduced me uh, to this term uh, surrogation. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really, it was really useful and interesting. Oh, well, great! It's not mine, for starters. I, that that's a uh, that's a term that uh, that uh, some uh, some other scholars came up with. So it struck me as interesting. Yes, yeah, sur surrogation, right? It comes from the word surrogate. You know, we've got all these political surrogates who are who are so, uh, sort of speaking for this other person. They're a surrogate for this other person. And and the and the theory of surrogation is is that when you when you uh, have a metric. Uh, the metric it is supposed to be a way of measuring the thing you would really want. So to use the Wells Fargo uh, case, the thing you really want is deep relationships with your customers, which is pretty much an unalloyed good. That's, that's just a good thing, right? Uh, but you need to have a measure for that. And you say, oh, you know, accounts per customer. If you got, if, if Chris, you've got five accounts with, with uh, Wells Fargo, you, we've got a deeper, uh, more lasting relationship with you than if you just have your mortgage with us, or you just have your mutual funds with, with, with us, or maybe your, your savings account. What if you had all, all of those and, and, and more? And so we'll use that as the measure. What happens in this m sort of mental process of surrogation is, is as that goes on in, in time, people start to th think that more accounts is a deep relationship with the customer. It's surrogate, it's the same thing. Uh, and that is what, is what becomes very dangerous. And in that case, uh, the idea of by whatever means you did, if you got to have Chris have one more account, which involved opening a credit card for him that he never asked for, that that you have accomplished more of the thing. Ah, I now have a deeper relationship with Chris uh, because he has now, instead of five uh, products with us, he's got six, he's got a credit card. Only of course, when Chris finds out that he's paying fees for a credit card he never uh, you know, authorized, rather than you having a deep relationship with him, he wants to you know, you know, stomp into the bank, bank and start, start uh, yelling at you, at you or just, or just uh, moving. So that's, that's surrogation and it tends to happen when you are focused on one measurement. And so, so for example, right, like one of the terrible surrogations that's gone on, and until I read read about surrogation, I didn't I didn't understand it in this context. Is is the surrogation of today's stock price multiplied by the number of shares outstanding equals the value of a company? And it's a bit crazy when you think about it, right? Because when the stock market goes up, 
800 points or down 600 points in in a day and your stock price goes down you know five five bucks uh from 50 to 45 is it actually true that that the company is actually really worth 10 percent less the next day right really did did so many things happen that that, that to the company you know, and then you try and say, what happened? Did we lose any customer? Oh, no. Did we, uh, did, did we get sued by, by somebody for it? Did we lose a big distribution deal? No, 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 nothing, nothing, nothing. But because we surrogate it, we're sure that our shareholder value just went down 10%, a disastrous, horrible day for our shareholders. No, it's not, right? It's, it's, it's not. So that, that, that's the, so if instead, you said, you'd said, you know, we're going to measure the value to shareholders as the share price is one, is one thing, but how many uh, uh, repeat customers we have, uh, what our, our, our um, product ratings are uh, compared to competitors and how satisfied and long serving our employees are. Uh, if you did that, it, it'll be impossible to surrogate. Right. right. It's like, I'm going to surrogate to five different things. Uh, you know, no, because there are five of them. I know, obviously, in my head that not one of them is equal to shareholder value. Uh, uh, and so it, it, it's a preventative uh, cure for for the tendency to surrogate. Well, and, and I think it goes back to where we started with, which is you also keep things in tension. Right. So, you know, the number of new customers, the number of customers leaving, like the cost of acquisition of new customers, these things all, if you can look at it like an ecosystem, then you have a much thicker mental model of what's going on that will kind of eliminate or, or reduce the chance that you, you, you mistake the, the one for the whole. Yeah. And, and I agree. And, and I, and it's cool. You bring up, you know, the notion of tension because, because really that looms large in the book, you know, the yes. contrast between fixing and managing attention. I would say after the six years of work on this, on this book, I'm not much into fixing. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm in because there is no, there is no fix for hardly any, anything, anything, well, but that's and why fixing, bring fixing is a, is a static state, right? If something is fixed or it is not. And, and your whole point is that this is a dynamical system that we have to nurture and manage. And we shouldn't be afraid of tensions. That's another thing that, that if you ask over the six years of working on this, what kind of rose up as, as higher and more important in my mind and what went down, fixing went down. Uh, but what rose up is the notion that, that living with and managing tensions is, is, is absolutely, absolutely critically important. And you shouldn't be discouraged by the fact that you can't get rid of that tension. I mean, we're, we're, we're taught a lot in life, you know, that's a problem, let's fix it. Um, you know, I have a, uh, uh, you know, I used to be a strategy consultant and so work-life, home-life balance was, was a big problem with our, our consultants. They felt it viscerally and they would wanna come in and say, I need to fix this work-life, home-life balance. So we need a system here so, so that it's fixed. And I would say to them, um, 
I, I'm, I'm sorry to say, if you, if you think you need to fix it, you should, you should go into another profession, uh, you know, and we'll help you and, and whatever, because you can't fix work-life, home-life uh, balance. Uh, you can see it as a tension that every day you will have to manage go back and forth on things and, and, and manage it and hold that and not let it destroy you. Uh, but don't think that there's any, any fix because there, there uh, isn't. And I, I think you and I really line up on this. And this is something that I've come to much more recently, but I, I wrote something recently that was about fear. And um, I think one of the things that I believe is that moving toward fear is one of the core things that we leaders need to develop to thrive in this world. And I think, you know, fear might be taking it one step further, but I think that fear is often in response to tension and uncertainty that, that we are taught and we are raised. And you talk a little bit about this in the book, when you talk about education to try and come to the, the clean yes, no answer as quickly as possible. Right. I mean, problem sets is all about, that you know there's it's kind of everything you do in in your schooling is put up to that evaluation not everything but many many things many things yeah yeah no i i think that's i i i i believe that about uh, about fear you should send me what you wrote because it's a, it's a subject kind of near and dear to my heart because i think if you can't you kind of balance that and hold intention the i you know the idea that if I do, if I try this thing, I might fail. If I don't ever try it, I will not know. How can I balance those two things in order to take to take risks that that involve uh, involve the potential of fail, failure, that potential fear of failure, but aren't so over, you aren't so overwhelmed by it that you either do it badly because you're overwhelmed by fear, or just say I'm never I'm never going to do that. So it's again right tension. And, and I would I would say that a life devoid of fear, it's hard, it's hard to imagine that as a very interesting life. Right. right? Like right. So, so you're not trying to get rid of fear, but you're trying to uh, uh, to manage uh, uh, fear. Yeah, I I for me it's to make friends with it. Um, to say, oh, I see you there. Like, well, <laughs> welcome, welcome to the party, you know? Um, and it doesn't always work, but it's sort of, I guess for, for me, the kind of realization was, you know, early on when I started my, uh, this consulting practice, um, I was really struggling. I was struggling to connect with people. I was struggling to find the right work to do. And I think a big part of why I was struggling was because I was not willing to take the risks that I um, could have taken. I won't say should have, but that I think could have put me in interesting situations um, and could have, you know, there is a, a tension, I think, when you are um, at the beginning of something to feel like you have to prove yourself. And so that means showing up with an answer. In, in, that was my story, that I had to show up with an answer. And it really wasn't until I realized like, oh, no, I'm showing up with a process and a perspective and, and, and kind of um, maybe a product as it gets more refined to help co-create an answer. I don't 
know the answer coming into a, a, you know an industry that I'm not an expert in and, and an area that the people across the table from me know way more, but I can help co-create something with them. Absolutely. No, I, I mean, I think that's, you know, balancing the tension of, you know, fear, fear of failure and fear of doing nothing. And, and I, I, I think that's just not, you know, not being overwhelmed by, by something and not viewing there as one lever to pull to get to the right answer. That's a big theme of the book, right? When, right. when you view the economy as a perfectible machine, you think you can make it work perfectly. Uh, and, and you can't, there is no such thing. There is no such, uh, a destination. And, and I often feel that people, people are overwhelmed with fear when they figure out that they, they can't, they're, they don't know the way to fix things, something perfectly. Well, don't, don't set that as your uh, standard. And I for sure in the book say don't do not set that as your standard of the economy. Uh, set your standard that you will try things. You'll have theories that cause you to try things. You'll observe the results, and you'll tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak. Uh, it's it's not unlike. I mean, I'm influenced certainly by the by the the, the whole school of rapid prototyping in design, which says you know the way to get a really good product is to give customers a kind of a crappy low res version of it uh, uh, early on and say, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Uh, come back to them. Do you like this better? Oh, good. Yes, you do. How about this now? Do you like this better than you liked it before? And, and you do that 20 or 30 times and uh, um, you are f much farther ahead than somebody who sat in the lab uh, working and working and working and working to try to perfect it. Uh, so even though you'd say their, their standard is higher, isn't this lovely? This person is trying to come up with the all singing, all dancing product, the perfect product. They have a high aspiration. And this other loser is going out with this low res prototype and saying, is it any good? Can I make it better? Can I make it better? Right. That seems to, that seems to be such a low, low aspiration. All I can do is listen and make it better. But that second person is going to get farther towards perfection than the person whose intent is perfection, which is another kind of important lesson, which is saying you want something is not tantamount to being, making yourself more likely to get it. It's the old Aristotelian thing. Aristotle said, if a man sets out in life to be happy, he's not likely to end up happy. If he instead sets out to live a good life, by which he meant like a life of servitude to his and her fellow man, is probably is likely to end up more likely to end up happy. Uh, so, so sort of thinking to, to me, thinking about always improving. One, I think, makes you less fearful because you're not aiming. Is this going to be perfect? Right. It's just, as long as it's better, right? And you have a path to make it better still, you're okay. And that's, to me, is not sort of as fear-inducing a thing as saying, we cannot launch this product until it's perfect. And what I think is interesting is, you know, the, the for me, 
the it's always attention, right? I mean, the fear is always attention. Like we were talking before we we started the official portion of the interview, and I was telling you a little bit about you know I'm working with law firms. I have this niche. I'm doing coaching, and and what's interesting is like one of the things that I notice happening to me as I get excited about this, I'm like, okay, well, this is my thing now. Like now I have to make this happen. And I forget that the whole way I got to this point was through kind of openness and curiosity and experimentation. And I have to remember that to be, to do this work, I have to always stay in that spot or not always stay in it, but recognize when I have, when I have a commitment to be kind of successful and and right in the moment rather than curious and exploratory. Yeah. No, I mean it, it's it's an important it's an, it's important to remember the minute you think you're done uh you're probably about to fall behind, right? Yeah. Um and that is you know in 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 my work with companies on strategy that's one of the biggest problems with a successful strategy is people think they're done. Uh, and they're not. This, the, they're, it's a complex adaptive system out there. And one adaptation, what's one adaptation to a successful strategy? Imitation, right? right. Other, other, other competitors don't sit there and say, oh, wasn't that brilliant? Why don't we let that company slaughter us competitively for the next 20 years? They say, well, that seems to work. I can do that too. So, so you've got, it's a complex adaptive system where you have to assume that it will adapt to anything you do. Uh, and, and unless you are willing to continue to adapt, uh, they will have the adaptation advantage uh, over, over you. And so, so this again, is just, you know, I think we're, we're so much stuck in this model of, the economy and business are, are perfectible machines. All you have to do is think hard, uh, work hard, get to the right answer uh, and do that thing and then you're done. Uh, and that's, that's just not, not how it works. And, in, and as I talk about in the book, right? In the public policy domain, the minute you know, Congress enacts uh, kind of a piece of legislation, regulation, whatever, whatever it is, there will be adaptation. Everybody will start gaming that that system uh, and saying, "Oh, okay, how do we exploit that?" And so, in some sense, politics has set up this this you know, kind of absolute field of dreams for gamers, because it takes so long to get something through Congress. Uh, and then the people in Congress says, say, well, we're done now and far be it from us to ever revisit that because we're so smart, we've done the right thing. And the gamers are all saying, hallelujah, not only have they set out the rules in, a, in this, in this right. book that I, can, or, you know, that I can read and I know exactly what the rules are, they've kind of said, it's going to be that way forever or at least for a long time if i can find a clever way to manipulate it i can be profitable on that for a long time and so that's that's what's happened imagine instead if congress uh said you know here's the legislation that we've just passed and every year we're going to review uh how it's going is it having the effect that we expected or some other effects or some people exploiting it and we'll and we'll kind of modify it a bunch of the people who would 
who would otherwise game that will say, oh, that's not worth it. I'm going to get one year uh, worth of worth of sort of illicit gains until they until they shut me down. Uh, I'll go I'll go somewhere else uh, to game. And, the, and this is this is why this is why I say I, I always have this 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 metaphor. I don't know if you remember. Uh, it's not as popular as it used to be, but but a a, a a device for preventing your car from being stolen. It was called the club. It was a yes, big yes. thing, right? That it's had, you know, yes. using the ads of the club. Okay. So so I always used to say uh, the club definitively does not decrease car theft. And everybody's saying to me, well, well then why do all these people buy buy the club? And I say, it just rearranges car theft. <laughs> right they don't steal your car but do you think that the club discourages people from stealing cars well maybe if there were 100 percent market share but right but, the club does not have a statistical effect it just right. it just shifts demand a little bit yeah yes and and so that's what i that's what i said if you started if you started saying we're going to tweak everything uh and that's part of what we're going to do the gamers are going to go kind of elsewhere uh and that's what i'd like them uh, to do and we do this, you know, in Canada, as you know, as you know, Chris, I'm a Canadian, and and in Canada we have the, our our banking legislation, the key kind of most important by far banking legislation. It's more consolidated than it is in the U.S. The legis legislative uh, control. It's, it's federal, not not uh, provincial slash uh, state to the same extent. So that's the legislation. And some brilliant people, and interestingly enough, if you go back in the history, there, it's not absolutely clear why, when it was passed in 1871, which is four years after the founding of, of, of Canada as, a, as an independent uh, uh, country, um, they, it had a, a requirement for a formal review every 10 years, a review and revision every 10 years. Brilliant. Yeah. And so, and that actually was working so well that they reduced it in 1992 to five years. Um, and one of the reasons I think the Canadian banking system did so much better than the US banking system, there were no bank bailouts, no bank failures, no bank crisis, no lending crisis, no, no nothing, was because we had this living up to date, tweaked, tweaked, tweaked uh, uh, legislation uh, that took into, effect, it took into account what was Actually happening in the uh, in the industry, not just what what people thought in 1871 was important to to uh, banking. So I'd like to see, I'd like I would like to see that be ubiquitous, right? That Congress, with every legislation, there has to be, at, you know, at a sensible period. Some legislation will probably be sooner, some will be later. Uh, but every two years, every five years, every 10 years, or a big one five years in, and then every 10 years, whatever, but a specific, specific wording in every legislation about its, its the, the uh, absolute requirement for its review. So it's not political, right? So in Canada, the Bank Act doesn't get reviewed because the conservatives hate the bank or the liberals hate the bank or the banks or the new democratic party. Those are three big parties, uh, uh, hate, hate the banks. It's because it's whatever, uh, uh, 2022 and that's five years since the last one and there will be a review. So it's not, not, not nearly as, as political a thing. And, and I think that brings up a really, an interesting question, which is, um, 
you know, I think to some extent, I think of our federal uh, political apparatus as kind of garbage in, garbage out um, in the sense that, and you talk about gerrymandering in the book, but there's just, there is so much that um, predisposes our federal electoral system to be, you know, very stagnant, very incumbent heavy, very money driven, and very, I think, disengaging for, um, the average kind of political uh, or the average citizen, you know, not to mention the fact that we have this really weird kind of two party duopoly. And so just as you as I'm hearing you talk about this, and I was, I was reading about this idea in the book, the thing that I kind of wonder is, well, is our system so broken that even that, you know, it would just be you'd be kind of, it'd be like, um, you know, sort of the same broken system reviewing it that put it into place in the first place. No, well, one, one, I'm, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, and, and maybe it's because I'm a Canadian and I've, and I observe for a while, I'm American too, but uh, observed from, from the outside. No, I do not consider it, it sort of terminally or hopelessly broken. So I'm, I'm more of a, more of an optimist. <laughs> I, I, but it needs tweaking. It needs a bunch of tweaking, and and there is a there is a, a a duopoly market power problem. There's no question that 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 duopoly exists. So, one of my rules in business life is, in the end, monopolies definitively exist to serve themselves. Yes. Right? You tell me how you know who your cable provider, your monopoly cable provider is most interested in when your cable goes down, right? Do they say, we'll be out right right away and what's the perfect time uh, for you, Chris? No, it's, oh, uh, let's see, we've got an appointment uh, two weeks from now, but you have to be home from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And if you're not, not home when they come, uh, and then you say, couldn't it be like the morning or the afternoon? No, Chris. Uh, no, and if you're not there, you know, it'll be another two weeks. So monopolies definitively exist to serve themselves uh, because they don't have to care about uh, customers. Duopolies aren't quite that bad, right? <laughs> but they're the next worst thing to it. And so we have a du duopoly in, in Washington that is, that is, I think, consistently abusing the electorate. And gerrymandering is, is the perfect case. It's sort of like, we want to make sure your vote doesn't count. Uh, uh, and we're going we're gonna to go to these incredibly great lengths uh, to, to make that. And so I do think for the system to be fixed, uh, citizens will have to take kind of, of more action in pushing back. Now, the good news is I'm not talking about kind of major things, right? There, are, there have already now been, been seven super successful anti-gerrymandering kind of states. Uh, uh, efforts, Arizona, uh, Florida, uh, kind of Michigan. Um, and all you have to do as a citizen is sign a damn petition, right? Somebody literally phones you up or comes to your door, asks you to sign a petition, you sign the petition. And then when, when it's put on the, the, next, the next ballot, all you have to do is vote against something that is terrible for you, right? Gerrymandering. Mandering. So, but but if citizens just are not aware the degree to which which this is used against them you know kind of then we then we do have a challenge or we do have a have a problem so i i do think we need citizens to help you know in answer to your question 
it's busted busted enough that we do need citizens to take some more proactive action to repair it. But I think it the repair is not is not dramatic because uh, again, this is a complex adaptive system. I mean, you make some little tweaks, and they'll have a bigger impact than uh, than than one might think. It's not linear. It's not oh, a couple of people signing a petition is going to no. It's like if you know 600,000 people in California sign a petition and it gets on the ballot and people say, yeah, there is no benefit to us of gerrymandering, like none, zero, nada. Uh, it's for only people in Washington. Uh, why don't I sign this? Boom, you got whatever, uh, you know, 30, 30, 35 million people living in a different uh, environment. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've made me a little more optimistic <laughs> this morning too. <laughs> um, I want to go back to the the kind of conversation around tensions that we were having because you outline some specific ways that we should shift from thinking about our systems as this kind of stable end state to thinking about things that we should pull back. And I think it's really an interesting, um, yeah, an interesting area. And I wonder if you could talk about um, a couple of those that that sort of stood out to you. Sure. Well, well, I talk about you know kind of three three tensions that we need to balance, uh, and one is going to be near and dear to your heart. But uh, uh, you know, one is between pressure and and friction. So it's good to put pressure on systems to perform, but it's also important to have friction, uh, like a governor on a on a, a car to keep it from going going too fast because if it's all pressure, uh, you, you, uh, uh, you won't have enough friction and you'll, you'll end up, you'll end up with this, with the kind of extremes we've talked about. So, so trade barriers, think of it this way, trade barriers are friction, right? Opening trade is pressure. We've been on a kick since the Kennedy rounds in 1960 of saying, no, 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 no. All op more open trade is better, more better, more better, more better. Uh, no, no. There, there's a there's a balance. It's 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 not. You need to balance how much pressure is good versus how much friction is uh, is important. So that's that's uh, that's the the first balance. The second we've talked quite a bit about the 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 uh, balancing the desire for perfection with the drive for improvement. So I don't mind having the high standards that say the more perfect we can make this, the, the better. But if, if you think that there's something out there called perfection, um, you will never get there. Uh, you have to say no, improvement is the best route to get closer to uh, perfection. So, so balance, balance those two have standards that say we want to get it someplace important. That's where per, what sort of the I, per, perfect ideals give to you. But then the methodology is tweak, 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 forever uh, to get there. And, and uh, that's and, uh, just, and that, that's sort of, I mean, that's sort of also an acknowledgement that like, you don't actually know that the state you're driving to is the right one. Exactly, exactly. That's a very good, that's a very important uh, point. If you think you can go for perfection, you're sure you do know. Right. right? And you're almost 
certain to be wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, so that's, you're, making a, you're making a very important uh, uh, point. Improvement by way of tweaking can help you keep on course correcting as this complex adaptive system shows you that it's working in a little different way than, uh, than you might have thought. I mean, you've, you've, you've seen the book. I have, the book is sort of an ode to John Sturman to a certain extent, because I think he's the terrific, he's the MIT system dynamics guy. And, he's, and he says, there are no main effects and side effects. Yes. They're, they're just all effects, and they're just some that you anticipated and some you didn't anticipate, uh, um, and, which I think is a really good, uh, good, uh, good point. So there's going to be a, you, you push any button, pull any lever, make any move and there will be a bunch of effects uh, and they're all, none of them are main and none of them are side. They're all just effects. Uh, and you just have to start internalizing. I believe that some of them are going to be unanticipated. You cannot, no matter how smart you are. And here's again, where I think our sort of elite education system uh, convinces people you know, Harvard Business School students and Stanford Business School students and Wharton Business School students, uh, uh, Columbia or whatever, Sloan are, are, are made to believe that they can figure out all the important effects. Uh, and that's dangerous. And, and the, like the, not at all of these places, but at a lot of them, and you'll have a lot more thoughts about this than I do, but the kind of, the sort of medium of teaching is through a purely retrospective case exercise, right? Um, where, you know, there's some like, there's like prospective playing in it. Like you get the first half of it and it's like, oh, what are you going to do? But then everything wraps up to an answer that is, you know, what, because that's how the, the world decomposes to one answer in the past. In the past, um, absolutely. absolutely. No, no, I, I, I agree. It, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it is sad. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of funny, this dovetails. I don't make this point in the book, but it, it kind of allies to a certain degree with, with uh, Carol Dweck. I mean, I probably, I probably should have talk, talked about that, which is in some sense, the striving for perfection is the opposite of a growth mindset, right? Yeah. Right. It, it's, it, it sort of, it, 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 you know, I would argue that tweak, 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 uh, and you're not so smart, you don't have such a giant brain that you can figure everything out, you just got to tweak it, is, is Carol Dweck's growth, growth mindset, I think. Uh, she may, I, I mean, I should, act, I should probably actually, actually ask, her, ask her about that, but it, but it feels like I think she would agree. I, I love that, and I think that I, I just wrote about uh, Dweck and her work. Uh, oh, actually, really? Okay. Yeah, just right in in line with this podcast because we've just launched and we just launched this week and so people listening to you will be a couple of weeks down the pike from this but yeah. i was just having um a lot of anxiety uh leading up to the launch and you know what i realized is that like like i'm just not great at this yet and in doing this I am taking on a new medium. I'm taking on a new format. It's very different than writing a book where you get, you know, umpteen chances to revise and you've got editors and all this, all this stuff. And there's a really beautiful kind of piece of, of so it's almost like a, it's a soliloquy from Ira Glass of, of This American Life. 
yeah. where he's talking about when you start doing something like when you start producing something, some creative work, you are not very good at it, but you got into this work because you loved it. And so your taste is really high, but if you're honest with yourself, where you are right now at the beginning is not that great. And the only antidote to that is just doing a big volume of work. It's writing a lot. It's doing a bunch of podcasts. It's shooting a bunch of video. It's whatever it is that you're trying to get better at. And I think that you know, one of the arcs in our conversation right now, like one of the, the, the kind of threads is this idea that experimentation is better than perfection. And I think that to really live that, we've got to be willing to put out stuff that's incomplete and impolished. We've got to put out the kind of experimental product as we go, because as you said before, we can't just sit in a lab and tinker with it with no audience because we won't get any feedback. We won't do the work. We need to be putting stuff out there. And for me, Carol Dweck's work, I came to it probably probably five years ago. Uh, and it was really transformative. It was yeah. like, oh, this is what I've been. I've been in a fixed mindset my whole life because I always knew that I was really smart. But like, look at the ways that that's held me back. Yes, yes. And it, and it's and it's a, there's nice lineage too back to some of my favorite favorite uh, people John Dewey uh, Charles uh, Sanders Peirce uh, William James the American pragmatist which is sort of yes which you know they 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 might have might well have been the original Nike like just do it right. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, because that's the only only uh, way. I mean, art as experience is one of my most you know influential uh, to me influences on me of any book I've ever read. Painful. Book. I haven't read it. Oh, it's the most painful book. It is so. It, it's just uh, so dense. You have to reread paragraph like three or four times to get it. But it's the John Dewey classic art as experience. Um, uh, but the third tension, just to, to get to that, because this is your this is your baby, is, is balancing connectedness and separation. And when when you when meltdown came out, your fabulous melt meltdown, you and uh, and my uh, uh, beloved colleague uh, at the Rodman School, Andrash, um, uh, came out. It was it, it it so resonated with me because that's what I saw in my work. So if you will, I was studying. Uh, studying the economy and you know the American economy and how it was working uh, and seeing stuff and then meltdown came out and it was like you just you ex you explained uh, to me one of the sort of proto tensions I guess I was seeing but hadn't didn't have it, 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 it with the clarity that uh, that you guys had which is and, and as as anybody who's listening to this podcast probably has read meltdown knows it's it's a it's just a, a careful, well-reasoned warning about too much connectedness. It doesn't say connectedness is bad, right? Which is consistent with my, my view here. It just says, watch out and a little bit of separation doesn't hurt. Uh, uh, and so, so that, that, that's the third tension. We must balance our desire to connect things together uh, with the need to keep them separate. But also, also it works the other way. We must, we must kind of, be wary of when we keep things entirely separate because things are connected in a complex a a adaptive system. So this is truly a tension where, where I think we play it 
badly on both uh, both sides. Your book points out to, to a bunch of these cases where we made things kind of unthinkingly uber connected. Uh, on the other side of that to me would be education that says the study of history is separate from the study of physics, which is separate from the study of, of, of math or in business school, the study of accounting is separate from the study of marketing, which is separate from the study of, of HR. That's, that's in some sense, the opposite side of meltdown. It's, it's you, there are connections and you're just ignoring them in, entirely. Yeah. Well, and one of the things you, you give some very um, specific thoughts to businesses around being sort of less efficient. And there's a restaurant that you talk about that has a, a fascinating history. Um, what's the, what's it called again? It's Joe Joe's Stone Crabs in Miami Beach, Florida. And uh, all credit to and you know her well, uh, my my well my wife Marie Louise. She used to live in Miami before we were. We were uh, knew each other, and it was one of her favorite places. And she she just said, "Hey, we, we need to go to Joe's because it's great, and we've never we've never been." And I just went like completely gaga uh, with, with <laughs> the experience, and and that led to interviewing Joe, uh, the uh, owner Stephen, and his mother Joanne, and and putting uh, together this this little case case study of it. But all hundred percent of the credit goes to. Uh, Marie Louise. Yeah, um, we, you know it's 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 a story about the the ways that the business kind of puts the brakes on itself almost to sort of try and be more sustainable. Um, and this is a point you've made in in other places too. And I think um, is it the um, is it the Four Seasons Hotel you talk about investing in in kind of people. So you get more longevity from your your people. They have a sustainable career with you. So you're not spending all this, you're not doing this this thing that seems like a zero-sum trade of, you know, paying them more and then you have kind of just your overhead is higher. You're paying them more, but you're getting a tremendous return in terms of the customer service, in terms of reduced cost for hiring and training new people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another one in the book, another one is Costco, right? Because Four Seasons, some people would say, well, that's super high end, luxurious. So you've got a little more room in your cost structure. I don't think that's a terribly good argument, but there's no such argument to be made for Costco. It's the club store business. You got to have super uh, low prices to attract and customers. And Jim Senegal at Costco consistently pays pays wages that are in the range of 40% higher than, than industry standard. Like it's like 22 bucks an hour, you know, to, to, to start on the store floor versus, you know, minimum wage of, of $12. How the, how the heck can you do that in the club store business? And the answer, the Jim call is, is easily, right? It's because our customers lo love us. Uh, they buy more stuff when they're in the Costco. They come to Costco more. And so our sales per square foot are off the charts compared to all these people, pay companies paying uh, uh, minimum, minimum wage. So there's, yeah, there's, there's this greater sense of these things are all connected to one another. And you have to appreciate the, co the, the connections. Like I would, I would argue that it's not exactly what you talk about in 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 uh, meltdown because it isn't it isn't as obvious and catastrophic. But I would say some of the retailers out there 
that have gone into downward spirals that have ended them have, have, do not recognize the tight coupling between what I pay my employees and the service that customers get in the store. They sort of think those are two different things. The person running store operations should just make that store work better. And meanwhile, that person running, running HR has got to keep grinding down labor costs. We'll measure them on the basis of did they get 5% more out of labor costs. So it's a different kind of meltdown, but, but it, it, it's in the same family as your, as your meltdown. They didn't realize that those things were utterly tightly connected and having a person sleepwalk. And, and we did this at, I talk about the Good Jobs Institute, the wonderful Zainab Tong in, in the book. One of the, the, uh, the junior members of the staff, who's a, a Sloan MBA, Sarah, uh, went and, and just applied, absolutely truthful, uh, resume said Sloan MBA on it for an entry level job in one of America's grand, uh, big retailers uh, and chronicled life there uh, oh, wow and and it, it it her it was just it was a thing of rare beauty where she just showed how people uh, how the workers who were they were all good people but you know they had crazy shifts where the last minute they were asked to come in and say so they were sleepwalking through their their shift she she would spend days on end not doing anything because she was waiting for her supervisor to give her instructions. She would ask her supervisor, you know, I need to know what I need to, to, to do next. Should I be stocking stuff or should we, uh, what, what? And literally at one point, I think there were three days went by. Right. And, and, and so, so, right. They, they just, they do not understand that, that how you hire, who you hire, with what arrangements, how much you, you uh, train them are all tightly connected with, with some results. <laughs> um, and by the time they figure it out, they're in a, in a downward spiral. And meanwhile, Jim Senegal, who says, you know, who we hire, how they feel when they, when they come to work, what they think their prospects for the future are. Do they think they're going to put their kids through college on a, on a Costco salary? Do they think that they too could end up being the CEO of, of, of Costco? Yes, because we promote almost entirely for, uh, uh, from within. That is tightly connected in a way you talk about in, 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 in Meltdown with sales per square foot, customer uh, satisfaction, customer uh, uh, loyalty, gross margins, and stock price. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's, I mean, it's, there's sort of two things happening here. And, and you, you talk about both of them in the book. And, and you know, we've, you've mentioned both of them now. One is this, this surrogation thing, right? You think that driving cost as low as possible is an important objective for the business. It's competitiveness. Um, right. It equals competitiveness. Right, right. Um, in the same sense, you know, I do, I've been doing some really interesting um, kind of change work with a big oil and gas company. And, you know, they, they face a lot of these same things. It's like maintenance dollars spent. It depends on how it's spent. It depends on when it's spent, you know, in the short term, sure, you can cut back on maintenance, but obviously in the long term, that doesn't help your, your picture when it comes to reliability. You know, you can also go the other way, right? You can, you can have kind of 
clunky procedures that seem like they're going to help you with something, but when it, you know, when push comes to shove, actually just make your system more complex and, and, and don't help you with it. Yep. No, no, exactly. And again, and you're pointing to, I'm I'm sure it's totally obvious to you, uh, Chris, that that big oil and gas company is a, operates in a, it is a complex adaptive system within itself and it operates in this bigger complex adaptive system. And those things, those things are hard to figure, figure out. Um, But I think if you take a couple of perspectives, like kind of one is you better think about whatever connections you can think about and not siloize it artificially. Uh, And two, and two, you've got to be experimenting you got to be tweaking seeing what happens tweaking tweaking seeing what happens and and constantly be attempting to uh to improve it and that's the that's the only way that i think you can manage such a such a business to have it have it be prosperous over the long term to have to have the resilience i talk about in the book well and and the other thing i think and this is something that i don't that just is kind of coming together for me now is you know, the other thing that's missing from a lot of these uh, examples where things, the parts start to represent the whole is really channels to listen to feedback from people, right? So at the societal level, it's channels to listen to feedback from the electorate, which we were just talking about the ways that that's being blocked. At the company level, it's like, you know, I mean, really, it's not anyone's intent that an associate spends three days on the sales floor doing nothing, right? I mean, it's pretty clear that that's waste, no matter what your perspective is. And, but without the feedback, without that kind of ability to actually penetrate the nuances of operations, you are, you will too easily get stuck or, or at Wells Fargo where people were saying, Hey, this is wrong. This is too much pressure, you know, and then those people were getting fired. Um, that is the opposite of a good feedback channel. No, no, that's right. Or some of them, desperately needed their job to put food on the table and open accounts so they wouldn't get totally fired. totally yeah, it's yeah just all all uh, all sad but it's all it, it it is it is avoidable right i, I mean yes and that's why i'm in the end i in the end i'm optimistic i i think i think we can we can tweak the system it feels like we're walking a little bit towards a precipice which is what it's what it gets me but but i think if we just stop start walking backwards that maybe pivot turn around we can we can walk ourselves uh away from it and that's that's the hope i have that the book starts us to back away uh yeah from, from that precipice and if and if i if i can do that if i can contribute to that i will feel very happy i i love it thank you um the book is fabulous i i really really liked it um it also made me i'll say more optimistic than I was um, before reading it. Um, I have two more questions that are, one of them is kind of a something I've been thinking about that I haven't been able to resolve in the context of the book. Um, and the other is I'm curious about your personal journey. I don't, how are you with time? I know we're a little bit- over I could probably do uh, another 10 minutes or so. That's perfect. Um, so Amazon, how do you think about Amazon in in the framework of your book? Because they are- they are so interesting. They do much. They do so much that's innovative. I mean, they're kind of creating new industries. They also do a lot that really um, doubles down on the power of them as a platform um, in terms of like 
seeing what sells from other people and then producing their own generic version of that as an example. Um, how do you kind of situate them in, in where are they in your, in your kind of, um, so, so they, what I would say, uh, like if Jeff Bezos was asking me this question, I would say you aren't, uh, balancing resilience with efficiency to the extent that I would, I would recommend, um, the, for me, the ultimate resilience of a system uh, is dependent on everything, every sort of player that the system needs is, can uh, prosper in that system, uh, right? So, so, you know, the interesting thing about Amazon, if you look at Amazon and just look at their, their, their kind of models, most, most of the tech, the leading tech companies have off the charts uh, compared to the rest of America uh, sales per employee, right? right? Apple, Netflix, Facebook, etc. Uh, over a million dollars per 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 employee. Amazon is the exception, the one exception of the tech giants to that. Why? It's because because part of Amazon is is cyber. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and part of it is physical, like really, really physical. And so, uh, so they got a whole, whole lot of people in their system. And I don't think they're paying enough attention to the resilience of their physical uh, system. They're not good enough to employees in that part of the system. I mean, if you're writing code for Amazon, you're making lots of money and you're, that's no, that's no problem. So, right. so that's, so that's uh, one. The second thing is, is I think they are uh, being abusive to their, uh, the um, branded goods that draw people to the site. So they say, we got, we got to draw people to the site by having all the goods from all the branded producers and all the branded producers will, will uh, supply us because we're big and strong. And then we will actively seek to screw them, uh, right? By ripping off their things, forcing them to produce things, uh, uh, favoring our products above them on searches that are supposed to be, supposed to be actually popularity uh, uh, based. So, so for, for me, I'd just say that does not make a resilient system. Uh, if you need the branded goods, you need to make it work for them. And the bricks and mortar channel went through that and figured it out, right? They discovered private label uh, and in Duke, and private label went up, 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 up. And then, then, then uh, all those physical stores said, you know what, to have this structure work, we do need a thriving branded goods at this price point so that it shows great value for our, st our store brands. There's got to be this kind of differential. Those branded goods have to survive, prosper, do well for this system to work and got to equilibrium. I think Amazon just doesn't have an understanding of, of, uh, of that and has more of an attitude as we can kill all those people. We'll put them all out of business. And so it'll be all 100% uh, Amazon. And, and so I would say you've built a fantastic business uh, and now you're in danger 
of of being unresilient and will blow up. And how do and how do these things tend to blow up? Uh, uh, it, it's it's often political. Political. Mm, that's right. interesting. The government, it, it, rightly or wrongly, rides to uh, rides to the rescue and busts up Standard Oil, ends the monopoly of AT&T, uh, tortures IBM to death with, uh, with you know, antitrust cases, uh, you know, starts to torture um, uh, Microsoft. So, so what, what, and why does that happen? It happens because somebody uh, uh, or enough citizens said, I can point to exactly how I'm being screwed uh, and and government said, yeah, that's pretty definitive. That's bad behavior, and so we will we will use our bigger stick uh, on them. Uh, and that's the, that's the advice I'd give Jeff Jeff Bezos: think about resilience, and think about the core principle of resilience, which is you either have to exclude somebody from the system and therefore not depend on them at all, mm-hmm. or depend on them in the system and then have the system operate in such a fashion that those people, those entities, whatever they are, prosper. Cool. Um, and then I guess the, the, the last question I have for you is, so, you know, you've written, I don't know, a gajillion books, you've written even more HBR articles. Um, just this last year, you were named the, the number one management thinker by Thinkers 50. Um, and it was fun to be there when that happened. It was a real honor to, to kind of share that moment with you. Um, but I'm curious about, I'm curious about the work you had to do in your life to be able to do the work that you do now. And, you know, we're talking about fear. We're talking about things that don't work. We're talking about, um, iterating. I know that you're in a, in a, um, in a place right now that you're really, um, you're, you're doing the stuff that you love to do as you, as you started off by saying, but what, what were the kind of challenges and what was the work that you had to do to get to, to this point, to the extent that you're willing to share? Oh, sh- oh no, sure. I, I, I don't mind, mind, uh, mind sh- uh, sharing uh, at all. I don't, I don't know if it'll be, you know, uh, if it'll be ac- accurate or it'll be like my, my d- telling of, of a story. But I, I guess um, I, one, when I, when I started um, writing, right, I, I could have never imagined that I would have the, the kind of, volume of stuff now so you sort of have to you sort of have to start uh, uh small uh i remember when i wrote my first hbr article i had one hbr article and the people who had the most hbr articles you know had had kind of many 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 more um but i just sort of plugged away and plugged away and after after a while if you keep plugging away uh you know there there get to be more to get to be more things. And in due course, you have a body of work that people say, well, you know, that's a consequential uh, body of work. So, right. so then the question is, well, what causes you to keep plugging away at it? I think you kind of, I think you kind of got to love it, right? I write because I love it. I mean, people around me will sometimes sort of, and used to be, uh, 
when I was dean, because dean was a big job, and especially the way I, I sort of did it, I was a, a very busy dean. Uh, every once in a while, my chief of staff would like send me home. She'd, she'd just say, you're too tired, uh, go home. And then I'd come back the next morning and she'd ask me what I did. And I said, oh, I wrote an article. Uh, and she said, that's not what I <laughs> sent you home for. I sent you home to, to, to rest. Uh, and I'd say, but that's better than resting. Uh, it's something I, something I love. Um, and you're so, processing things too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, there's, the, 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 there's the classic kind of, you, you know, you got to start small, stick with it. And, and and do something something you love, um, but I guess the other, the other thing I would say, you know, kind of why I'm I think you know I guess you just uh, like I've always wanted to be a, a voice that that would be missed if I if I if I stopped writing I would be missed so that's the that's the goal. Why would I be a voice that would uh, would be missed? Is I I do think I've game to stake out more bold than not. Uh, points of view um and and i would say if you're gonna if you're gonna be a voice that would be missed you got to do that because there'll be lots of people who are willing to write on things that don't require boldness and and putting yourself out there so i i, I guess i would say that's that's probably what's got me here i started small i kept at it i was doing something i loved and i was willing to tackle sort of bold intellectual uh, uh, tasks. Yeah. And in a, in a, in a pragmatic way, as you said before, I mean, kind of getting back to, you want, you know, you want to understand, well, is this stuff actually working or not? Yes. Yes. And that, and that, and you see, I, I mean, I had great mentors in that Chris Argerus, the late Chris Argerus was fantastic on that. He pounded into me, you know, Roger knowledge upon which you cannot take action is barely worth having at all. Right. It would be like if, if, you know, Chris, you told me the thing you wanted to be more than anything else is a professional basketball player. And I, and, and I would say, well, Chris, I've done the analysis and it would be much better if you were about eight inches taller, you know, <laughs> right. that, that, that is, is kind of knowledge. You know, I've done the analysis and, and eight plus eight would be, would be good is utterly worthless because last time I checked, you ain't going to grow eight inches uh, as an, as an, as already an, an adult. So he pounded into Although me. I, I find action. myself sitting up more straightly already. So that's. <laughs> um, so he, he, he helped probably my father, uh, who was, uh, you know, an entrepreneur started a business when I was two. So I grew up at his feet was one pragmatic guy, right? He just, you know, cause he had to make ends meet and whatever. And then Chris Argerus, more the, more the conceptual intellectual, manifestation of of that uh that pragmatism and then other people like dewey and uh and uh james and purse um so uh all of that is uh and and uh and i always give my mother credit for being the system dynamics person she she uh, she is the one who taught me subtly that everything is connected to everything um so beautiful there you have it Beautiful. Well, Roger, thank you so much. Um, you know, I always get a ton out of our conversations and I'm glad this one I get to, to share with other folks. So this is really, really exciting. A real honor. Terrific. Thank you. Terrific. Well, I, I, look for, I look forward to listening it to myself and sending it out, uh, out to all the social media people who uh, think it's worthwhile following me. All right. Thanks, Roger.
Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.